0: Hello, and welcome to the latest episode of the Leadership Matters podcast. My name is Valerie Jackman, and I'm the Leadership Lead at CDM. The purpose of this mini series of podcasts is to explore leadership from different perspectives. So, what can we learn from the past? What's required for the future? And where can we draw inspiration from? Today I am delighted to be joined by Anthony Willoughby. Anthony is an author, an explorer, an entrepreneur and founder of the Nomadic School of Business. Anthony was brought up in Africa and he has lived and worked and studied with nomadic families and indigenous communities from all over the world. And over the past decades, Anthony has been working on a visualizing process called territory mapping a process that encourages future thinking leaders and organisations to tackle the most complex business and personal solutions. Over the next 30 minutes, Anthony and I are going to be chatting about his journey in life, his work and what he believes is important for 21st century leaders. So welcome, Anthony. It's an absolute delight to have you here.
1: Valerie, thanks so much for inviting me. It's uh, very kind of you. Much appreciated.
0: And I've heard some of your story before, and it's an absolutely fascinating story. Can you just start by sharing a little bit of your background?
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm sort of an eighth generation expatriate. I was brought up, as you kindly said, in Africa. uh, where I had a wonderful time sort of running around bare feet and uh, thinking life was wonderful, then getting sent off to an English boarding school, which I absolutely loathed and couldn't understand what I was doing there. But uh, really, it's been my background is is, uh, when I was 22, I set off for Japan with a one-way ticket on the Trans-Siberian Express, you know, in search of adventure, fun, opportunities and excitement. And, you know, 60, 50 years later, I'm still on that same journey. Uh, But it's really on these journeys that uh, I started going off from Japan on different trips and uh, to Kenya and elsewhere. And that's when I first sort of saw The Maasai, and what I really saw is that they had absolute substance without arrogance. And Mm. I thought, why on earth are we at school simply taught how to be arrogant without substance? (laughs) And I sort of thought, what is it that we've lost? Why don't we have that natural presence? And really, that was 40 years ago. And it's really been the last 40 years that I've been trying to understand what it is we've lost, probably even the greatest challenge. How can we get people to value what we've lost? How can we actually get people to value the past? And as uh, Nola, my Aboriginal friend, says, you know, we've got to think of ourselves as being good ancestors. What does it mean to be a good ancestor? Do we think about it? And that importance of thinking about collective first. We spend so much time thinking, me, me, me. Because that's our education. That's what we've been taught. But Indigenous people have spent a lifetime, thousands of years, first thinking about the collective, but obviously thinking about their individual contribution. So sorry about it. That was a little bit of a long introduction. But No, uh,
0: it's lovely. It's lovely. And it's really interesting. But tell me, so where's the connection with leadership?
1: Well, I think that the real connection with leadership is that it's not even talked about in an indigenous community because everybody knows they're a leader. I mean, every single person is told from the age of three in Africa or in Papua New Guinea, a child is given a goat or in Papua New Guinea, it's a pig. Look after that. And then the whole community will be safe, will be valued, and they know the values, they know what they're protecting, and they know what they're doing. And therefore, it's not really leadership, it's just a natural living by the values and contributing. And in a way, what it is, is you've got the power of your personality, the wealth of your life experience, and you know how you contribute.
0: Okay, so that's, yeah, that's really interesting. So at the, so at the age of three or four you
1: start to have responsibility. Yeah, and it goes through your life when you realize that if you contribute, you will be able to sit around the table because you have the wisdom to contribute. And that's what you have to learn. And as they say in Kenya, you know, you you can't have someone else to hold your shield. You've got to do it yourself. Uh, And so it does teach people that it's all around contribution and protection.
0: OK, so and then if we take that, so I love that idea, but if we take it into the here and now and just say, for example, within the college sector or within the education sector, how does that then translate? How, how, what, how is that relevant to, to leadership there?
1: Well, it's a leadership, I think it just gives people a sense that they've got to start realising that they're part of an ecosystem. They're not just on their own. It is wouldn't they be happier and feel if they understood more about how they contribute, what the bigger picture is, and, and ultimately think about the essence of the children that are or the students that are within their, you know, how are they creating leadership? Because how do you give people trust and hope? Because that is what I'm told the ultimate ability of a leader is, is to give people hope. Now, you might think, well, that's a bit wishy-washy. But without hope, we can't have trust. And without clarity, we can't have trust. So the question is, how do you make people feel relevant? And that is what I think we need today. It's not how you answer a question. It's how do you make people feel relevant, valued, and with a purpose, and therefore they have an identity.
0: Okay, so I'm starting to weave it together in my head now. So... There's something about encouraging and nurturing individual leadership, so the leader in everybody, but also being aware as a leader of a community like that, that it is the community and it is about building that trust and and supporting that community.
1: Very much so, but, I mean, the thing is you can't sort of have everybody suddenly thinking they're going to be communistic and you can't have everybody thinking they're going to be, you know, Donald Trump. And I think it is just making people aware that there is a gap in between. And it's not mm. just what you say. I mean, I've been working on this uh, nomadic trust wheel that, you know, you've got, it's, it's, a, it's a circle. It's like the earth in the northern hemisphere. You've got what you have to know. That is the most important. You have to know your territory, your wealth, and how you're going to grow it. That is absolutely essential. But what you then have is the southern part of that wheel which is around your invisible leadership, how you contribute, your humanity, your humility. And this is what is not taught. And that is what I think is the essence of what people need today, is that ability to make people, as I was saying earlier, to make them feel relevant. And they've got Mm -hmm. that essence of how they can contribute. And these are skills that I've seen are just not taught. It is just not taught to people on how you can be relevant and your power to actually make a difference to people's lives.
0: This is sounding really inspirational. Tell me about the, um, the visualization tool that you've developed.
1: The visualization tool is called territory mapping. There's a little bit of a story behind it. And having been with the Masa, as I was saying earlier, in northern Kenya, and uh, seeing them with their spear. And I thought, wow, this is fascinating. What is it they've got? And that's when I went to meet the Papua New Guinea ambassador in Tokyo. And I said, sort of, what is it you've got that we've lost? He said, well, why didn't you go to my territory and uh, find out? So I went off to Papua New Guinea into his village. And I saw people there with feathers and spears and shields. And I said, so what is it that you've got? He said, well, a big man has many feathers. A bigger man can hand out his feathers. It's about how you contribute to your community that you have the essence. And I started to realize that. And then you have to earn your spear. You can't buy it. You can't sell it. And When I got back to Tokyo, I asked the ambassador, what is the most important thing in your life? And he looked at me and he said, it is my territory. And I know from the age of three how to protect it, the identity. My identity comes from looking after my territory. That is my culture. And I realized I had no concept of what was my territory, what was my identity. It came from what I owned. It didn't come from who I was. And I became fascinated by that. That encouraged me to go off on some journeys and expeditions to climb high mountains and do other things. And I then opened the first outdoor team building center in Japan and China called I Will Not Complain because I saw complainers completely destroy morale. But what (laughs) I saw is people still said, where do I fit in? Where do I belong? Where am I recognized? Who am I? What's important? And that's when I realized that actually every indigenous tribe has absolute clarity who they are, what their priorities are, and what their purpose is. And so I had this idea, since they all had a map and everybody operated off the same map, I then thought, what would company employees draw? And I was asked by Thomson and Reuters to draw get two teams together, they didn't know each other. So I simply said, can I try asking them to draw their territory? And what I found absolutely amazing was everybody could draw a map of their territory. And once they could draw their territory, the rivers, mountains, deserts, swamps, what they were hunting, then everybody could share this idea with each other. And once people could share each other's ideas and hopes and fears, then they could start working together. So what I've been doing with this visualizing uh, called territory mapping, is literally to let people draw a map of how they see their world, because then they can articulate what's important, why are they trying to do things, and where everybody else is on the map. And the trouble is there are three things that come out in every mapping, ter- uh, mapping session. Our territory is under threat, our leaders are isolated, an internal lack of communication will probably affect propers doing the first two. So once you can get people to agree what their fears are, what their hopes are, then you can come up with a solution. So that is really what the mapping actually does and that visualising technique, it unleashes what we have inside us so we can talk with identity and purpose.
0: And I like that that you say it unleashes what we have inside us because it's not as if nobody else can tell me what my territory map looks like like it's only me who can, who can draw that and it's only me who can, who can share that.
1: Yeah, absolutely and, and that is it everybody but the thing is in, a, in an indigenous community everybody would know you because they know what you protected. they know what you what you were thinking and therefore every, all conversations have got context so you're absolutely right. In the West we've, we don't know people's territory we don't know their hopes we, they've got a job but we don't know who they are or what they feel is important or what their values are. But this process enables people to talk about what they're passionate about, whether that's individually or whether that's collectively.
0: And and that collective piece is really important because I know from my own experience, I have my own territory, other people have theirs, and actually there's a gap. I don't know what their territory is, so it means that there is... In terms of us communicating and understanding and working together, if we if we're not able to share and articulate the things that we see as challenges or the things that we believe are important, then communication is impacted, isn't it?
1: Well, I don't think you can articulate something unless you've got a map, because Mm. there's no context to what you're saying. We've got to go and find some new customers. We've got to go and do something. There's no context whether it's in our own life. And I think that's what we've always had. And now what we are, we're robbed from these points of reference. We're robbed from talking about what is important because in any indigenous community, you know, every conversation has context. The hyenas are coming today. The weather is changing. The floods are coming. The grass is growing. And these are the decisions that then everybody understands what they need to do. So by having a map, it provides that sense of clarity.
0: And you've worked with some interesting organisations and uh, got people to draw maps and share their maps. Can you tell can you give us an example of of what's come out from that kind of work?
1: One of the most sort of... uh interesting ones for me was working with the Gates Foundation. we had done some work with Bill Gates and Warren Buffett, some team building on the Great Wall. Uh, and then we worked with the Gates Foundation and they drew maps of about six or seven people and everybody drew a different map. The challenges of dealing with the Chinese government, the China- challenge of dealing with the Gates Foundation, bridges not built. And then the head of it drew a map showing Seattle on one side in America, China over here and Africa down below and with ropes and 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 so why couldn't we come up with a plan that helps work with the Chinese government to raise Africa? And everybody thought, wow, that's a fascinating idea. What could we do that would be so big an idea? And they came up with the idea that why don't we mobilize resources? with the Gates Foundation and with China to eradicate polio around the world. And that is the plan that they actually came up with. So that's probably one of the sort of the bigger ones. But whether we're working with Ferrari, I mean, you know, they sort of draw their mammoths. that They've got everybody attacking them. They've got uh, you know, Rolls-Royce private jets trying to get to that, that spend. How do they protect? Uh, A lot of the the maps show the rivers. They show, you know, the chairman saying they're heading for paradise. But all the employees see is bullshit bridge, fantasy applications, everybody off on a different island. So whether we're working with Ferrari, the Gates Foundation, Dyson used it when they were setting up their new ways of uh, using their air products because it was a new territory for the salespeople. So it cuts through all of the traditional rationale and gets to the emotional perceptions and drivers uh, Mm. that that drive people's behaviours.
0: Wow, that's fascinating. I know that you are really interested in bringing this to education, both in terms of leaders within education, but I know you're also passionate about bringing this concept to young people so that they can get a greater sense of self and their own territory. What work have you been doing in that area?
1: Well, this is where it's really surprised me, because so often people say, oh, well, young children, they wouldn't know what they're doing. But we've actually done it with 11 year olds in Dubai uh, at a school there. And they all drew these incredible maps. Uh, about what they want to do with their lives. They want to save people. They want to build hospitals. They want to do things. And I think this is something that people really, really don't talk about. We've also just been running it for a school in Norfolk. And we're asking people to think, big, what is it you want to achieve in your life? Not that you want to become a doctor. What do you really want to be known for? And they've never thought about it. They're saying they're struggling. They've never thought beyond university. They've never thought about life is about contribution. They've never thought that wealth is beyond owning a Ferrari. And this is just not taught. And what we find out is, especially when we involve Emmanuel Mancura, my Maasai friend, Krishna, who's climbed Everest from Nepal and, and joined the Gurkhas in SAS, once we bring in people like that, they start to begin to redefine wealth, because I think what we have to do is, what is wealth? Wealth is breathing every day. Wealth mm-hmm. is being able to appreciate the day that you have and really being able to appreciate you can contribute. And really, as I am saying, civilization exists by splitting power, wealth, and status. And people are always trying to get the third one or the second one but what they have in an indigenous community is the power of their personality, the wealth of their life experience, and the status that they know how to contribute. And this is obviously repeating myself, but I just think it is so important for students to realize that if they contribute, they have identity. That is what people want today. They want to have community building. And that is a bigger skill that I think is lacking in schools at the moment or anywhere in the world, we're not taught how to build a community. And that is what the one thing that is taught to everybody in an indigenous community is how do you contribute to your community? Now, obviously there are negatives about that. It becomes nepotistic, it becomes dictatorial. There are all sorts of habits that people don't like. I'm not saying we become tribal. I'm simply saying it provides another context for conversation.
0: Mm. I love that line, you know, how do we learn from an early age how to build a community?
1: Well, that's my belief. And that's the one thing that I really passionately believe is so important. I really, really do.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So if if you were to give advice or share your wisdom, hand out your feathers to young emerging leaders, What are the things that you'd you'd want to share with them?
1: I think it's around dream big. I mean, when I was 17, I was writing to every newspaper in London, in England saying, can you send me to a desert island? Uh, you know, I want to do it. I'm Taking my photographs along to people, saying, look, look at my photographs. Will you publish it? I think it's just being ambitious, being brave, realizing that life is an adventure. It's not sitting there getting your exams. That's a tiny part of, of really what you're going to fulfill in your life. And it's giving people that hope beyond school that it's it's not what you're going to be it's just how you're going to enjoy that journey there and make them realize and appreciate it
0: and for leaders so for leaders who are just say appointed to their first or their second leadership role um, and they and they want to um they want to progress in those roles but they want to make a really meaningful leadership contribution what would you say to them
1: find out. I mean, there's a lovely expression with the Maasai. once said, who's the leader here? And they looked at me in disbelief. They said, what is the problem you're trying to solve? We have many leaders. And I think really for leadership, now the future is not around telling people. Leaders can't know what they're meant to be doing, especially if they've just been appointed there. The question is, how do you get other people to think they're your ideas? So how do you say, how would you do this? What do you think the problem is? How do you think we did this in the past? What is the best way of doing it? That is what leadership is. It's not telling people. I mean, this whole idea of leadership's got to be out and know everything. It just is not true. The future leader, I believe, as I said, is someone who makes people feel relevant, gives them hope, and can talk about a shared vision and can articulate what they mean and what they're passionate about. And I think we've got to stop being ashamed by being curious and being passionate, and that we want to be seen as being courageous. There's nothing wrong with that. And humility mm-hmm. is a courage.
0: Oh, that's lovely. That's wonderful. So if we are to sum that up, um, it's nigh on impossible for me, but there's, there's something at the core of it about we're part of a bigger community we and and that collective first if we can from an early age if we can start to take responsibility for ourselves and for our community but that's leading that's leading in a sense but we also need to be courageous we need to be brave we need to be humble and that lovely line that you used about having substance we need to be authentic yeah. Uh, yeah. and curious and and really that's what you're saying in order to be a leader for the future, these are the things that we need
1: to have. I think so. I mean, it's what people have taught me. I mean, I don't know. I mean, I I have no idea. I mean, every day one worries about is one making a mistake? Has one got the ideas right? Does anybody believe me? I mean, I'm 70. I'm still worried about exactly the same things. I think it is sort of enjoying the swamps one finds oneself in, that sense of inadequacy, insecurity. We're never going to get over it but i think we just need people to realize that is fun that is life that's that's the essence of who we are and it's not what you know it's how you deal with adversity and inspire and give others hope that's what i think leadership is it's it's not knowing something it's knowing how to be kind to people and uh, building relationships
0: oh that's music to my ears so that is that's just <laughs> absolutely before we finish, there's one thing that you mentioned actually that I want to pick up on, and it's about you mentioned something about I will not complain. Tell me just a little bit more about
1: that. Yeah, 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 I, I can definitely do that. Um... Basically, I'd been to Papua New Guinea a couple of times and uh, I then went to see the ambassador. I'd seen a book called Fly to Sea Pick Rivers, which are two of the big rivers in Papua New Guinea. And basically the spine of Papua New Guinea is all mountainous. And so the two rivers go. So I sort of thought I'll walk across it. So I got an uh, uh, aeronautical map, gave it to the ambassador. We had about 10 beers and he drew a line across it said, that's your route. So I said, yes, sir so i would seen that there were villages marked on this map this aeronautical map so i thought well food is not going to be a problem but i was overweight at the time so i thought well, the only problem is is wine so we had 24 bottles of wine no food and i was unaware that actually in papua new guinea there was a meter and a half of rain every month and we'd arrived in the rainy season and so we turn up there with our uh, with our wine And um, we head off into the jungle with extra porters carrying our 24 bottles of wine for us. And what happened was one bloke started complaining. There was my wife to be, my best man to be, and a fellow called Philip. And Philip complained, 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 and complained. And I saw that it just undermines, destroys morale. You can't lead. You can't make a decision if you've got a complainer. And when I got back to Tokyo, I mean, the fellow had been to the British ambassador saying, "Will it be left me for dead?" You know, etc. It was quite funny. But what I saw is, I was then invited to climb a seven thousand meter mountain in western China, which is the height of Everest, South Col. And I'd never climbed a mountain, so I thought I'd better go and learn in Africa, do Africa's three five thousand meter peaks, Kilimanjaro, Kenya, and Stanley. Suddenly, I had my mother-in-law, my father-in-law, everybody wanted to come. So I thought, right, how do I keep them? So I was with my father. And I said, how do I keep people off, complainers off? He said, I don't know, terrible people. So we came up with a list, I will not complain. And this list still exists. And, uh, you know, I got people to sign the document, I will not complain if I get eaten or trodden on by animals, if extra porters employed to carry wine, if overall the trip has a general air of British amateurism, if the trip does not get a plan, and if I complain, I can be sent home. And, you know, or I discover I've got prima donna tendencies because I just think we need this philosophy in life. We can't blame. We can't. We can't be a victim every time. We can't have that as an excuse. We have to realize life is a journey. We all make mistakes and that is what we have to do. We cannot complain. We have to make observations. We have to make changes if they're wrong. But we've got to come up with solutions. We can't blame other people. We have to come up with that solution. And, you know, realize, you know, that life, I think, you know, the one thing on life is Churchill's definition of success. And success in life to Churchill was stumbling from one disaster to another while maintaining (laughs) one's enthusiasm. And that is, I think, the essence of life. That is leadership, being able to to smile in adversity and, and get on with it.
0: Anthony Willoughby, you are inspirational and um, you, you lift, you lift my spirit. Um, and I just love that idea of not complaining. Actually, I might be sharing that with my 12 year old
1: I will have to get a bag for her, but yeah, absolutely. Anyway, <laughs> she'll be wearing that in Mongolia.
0: Yes. But, but it makes absolute sense because it does take the energy and it does make oh. it difficult to lead. Absolutely.
1: Yeah.
0: Anthony we've come to the end of our time for today it's been a real privilege I love it um thank you for sharing all that and thank it's you. been really inspirational because it's it's real it's real isn't
1: it I'm a best thank you very much
0: as are you so thank you very much
1: that's all very wonderful